I've been trying to do the math in my head uh, this week, which is not my strong suit. No matter what the math is, I'm trying to do. And the best I can come up with is that I think it was the birthday when I was 10 turning 11 that this took place. But my math could be off. But you're in the general ballpark, okay? 10 years old turning 11, which is pretty significant, you know, birthday. You still at that point know that the world revolves around you and your birthday and that everyone's going to celebrate that. And a couple of days before my birthday, my grandparents came over uh, to give me their birthday present. And I was pretty excited because they, in this realm of my family, were really good gift givers. And the fact they wanted to come early to give me my gift was a pretty significant sign. I took it. But I was disappointed because I was still at the age where the quality of your gift was defined by the size of what was given you when they pulled out an envelope, which I'm now at the age that's like the best kind of gifts you can get. <laughs> But they pull out an envelope, and I open it, and there's a card with a picture in it that says that you are going to go on your birthday to spend your birthday afternoon with this guy. That was pretty much my reaction as well. <laughs> Not that that's a cut down against this guy, but if you're 10, turning 11... There was a note, however, underneath it, because I didn't recognize who this was. You might not recognize who this was. This is an individual named Joe Frank Harris. Joe Frank Harris was the governor of the state of Georgia at that time. I lived and grew up in Georgia, and I was going to get to go and meet him at the Capitol with my grandfather, um, who, despite the fact that he was the governor, did not impress me all that much that I was going to have to go and dress up and go to this. Uh, despite the fact my parents were shooting me death stares at my lukewarm reaction to it, I think my grandfather picked up on the fact that I was not all that excited to go spend some time with Joe Frank Harris at the Capitol. And he said, uh, well, we're going because my grandfather owned a construction company and uh, was a business leader in Atlanta and in Georgia. He said, we're doing a project that the state's helping to fund, and we're going to go tour it with the governor, but we're going to go there and get an aerial view on his helicopter and you're gonna to get to ride in the helicopter to do that. Which, honestly, for a 10-year-old turning 11, like, just like, cranked that birthday gift up <laughs> to something amazing, right? It was like, oh, I can totally get dressed up for that. That I can go do. So, the day of my birthday comes, my parents make me dress up. They were like very into, like I had to wear a tie, which I still don't like wearing a tie, which is why you'll see before sermons, I still do this. And, uh, but I had to wear a tie, and I had to learn how to greet the governor. I had to learn to shake his hand. I had to learn, you know, how to refer to him. I had to uh, look him in the eye when I shook his hand. And we go there. My grandfather picks us up. We drive down to the state capitol in Georgia, in Atlanta, and downtown. We had a special parking place. We go up. We wait outside. Then there's a receptionist said, the governor's ready to meet with you. My grandfather and I walk in. He knew the governor, uh, talked to him for a couple seconds, introduced me. I did all the stuff I had to do to qualify for the helicopter ride. My tie was on straight. I walked in. I said the title that he was supposed to be called. I shook his hand. I looked him in the eye. And then he said, do you want to have a picture taken? I said, not really, but uh, that's okay if, you want to, if we want to do this. Uh, so we line up. There's a, there's a photo I have at home of my grandfather and me and my tie and, uh, and the governor. And then I think he could tell that I was not all that impressed to be in his office. Uh, yeah, he was showing me some stuff in there. And then he said, how about we go take a helicopter ride? And I was like, now you're talking. Now you're talking. So we walk out. Now, if you've ever taken a helicopter ride in the governor's, uh, in the state capital of Georgia, at least at the time, Governor Harris was there from 83 to 91. 
which tells you how old I am, uh, we had to go from his office, and we had to walk through a part of the state capitol that was a public part, and then you had to go back into a private part to get to the helicopter pad. So we walk from his office, and we walk into the public part, but there's like a museum in the public part, and the governor's walking ahead, and he's got his advisors there with him, and they're moving pretty fast to get to the helicopter, and my grandfather, who I love very much, uh, but was kind of a historian, kept stopping along the way to tell me stuff about what we were seeing that I can just flat out tell you I didn't care about, right? He would stop and he's like, Thomas, do you know what this painting is depicting? And it's like, no, it's not a helicopter. That's all I know. And he's like, this is the signing of the Declaration of Independence and these are the people from Georgia. Do you know the people from Georgia that signed the Declaration of Independence? Like, no. I don't. If we can keep moving, this would be great because the governor doesn't stop. He doesn't pause. He's just like moving ahead with his advisors. And then we kept moving and there was a glass display case. And my grandfather's like, Thomas, this is a flag. And I think I remember this right. Because this is a flag, a battle flag that a Georgia regiment used in the Revolutionary War. And, you know, it's a 200 year old flag that, you know, it's got this historical significance. And you're like, this is great. 200-year-old flag, very cool. Do you know what else is cool? A helicopter, that we are getting further and further behind the governor as he's walking. So like, let's keep moving, like, let's keep going. And the governor passes um, uh, through a hallway, and my grandfather and I are trailing behind, and he's still giving me history lessons that I'm trying to pretend like I'm listening to, and like pulling him along, and we get to the doorway, and a security guard steps in front of us and says, I can't let you all pass here. My grandfather says, no, 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 we're with Governor Harris. And we look, and there's no sign of the governor in the hallway. And the security guard says, I'm sorry, I, I cannot let you in. This is a restricted area. I mean, the guy was just doing what he was supposed to do. Now, my grandfather was a pretty formidable person, but this guy was like 240 pounds of muscle. And my grandfather said, no, we're with the governor. And the guy said, no, you're not. And, uh, and at that moment, as I was seeing my birthday involving lectures on flags and a tie and everything else crashing down around me, a voice behind the security guard says, Bill, it's okay, they're with me. The security guard turns around and Governor Harris has come back. And the security guard steps aside and says, go right ahead, and we walked right through. Now, a couple of things that I remember about that day. First, helicopter ride was totally cool. I, I mean, it, it, it fulfilled every expectation I had. Uh, I got to wear the headset. I was talking to the pilot. I actually gave him some suggestions uh, of what he should do. Um, and thankfully, he didn't listen to any of them. But I also remember that moment when we were in a situation that you couldn't control, you couldn't do anything about, and words were spoken that changed the situation completely. The power of words that are spoken when one has authority. I want us to keep that in mind as we engage our text for today. This is the last text that we'll be taking in a year-long journey, a 52-week journey that we have been on as a congregation of living the liturgical year. It's a journey that began last year with Advent. As you remember, uh, the liturgical year starts every year with the beginning of Advent. So next Sunday, with the hanging of the green, Advent 1, the liturgical year starts over again. Uh, we have gotten to see and have an expansive journey haven't we? We've gotten to a, 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 a read texts that we wouldn't have read if they weren't in the lectionary. Hello to the prophet Haggai. Always we'll be grateful that the lectionary pointed us to Haggai. We've gotten to celebrate moments in the church calendar that Covenant historically, uh, at least in recent years, hasn't spent much time in, like Trinity Sunday. These other things that the wider church uh, has, has expanded us as we've done this. We're thinking some about what does this have to do with our worship life as we go forward. It's changed us somewhat. 
And it'll be fun to see what the uh, lectionary uh, text can say to us and lead us to as covenant journeys into the future. But while the liturgical year always begins with Advent, this is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. And throughout the world, the liturgical calendar says, uh, for all different denominations and groups of Christians, that today has a particular title. The last Sunday of the year, what all of the 51 weeks have been building to in the declaration of this day, is that this is Christ the King Sunday. That's the celebration today. The whole year builds to this proclamation that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, that Jesus is the Lord of this world, that Jesus is the King over all of creation. It is He alone that is the one that we worship. And so I invite us one last time to look at our lectionary text for today that talk about the greatness and the glory of our King. Listen now to these words of Scripture. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus. There with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we gather for worship this day, we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a jarring text to read, isn't it? Especially on the day where we are proclaiming the might and power of our king. It's a jarring text the first time I read this. But I'm so grateful for this jarring text and that it's presented to us today because usually we read this text uh, one day out of the year. And let's be honest, it's not the most well-attended service when we read this. Good Friday that depicts uh, uh, the, the crucifixion. Every Sunday we have three services here on campus. You can see that there are a few people here today. Uh, our other services are, 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 are full of people. We have um, a live stream service that comes out uh, that's a part of this. So we have people who are experiencing it. Christmas Eve, we'll have four services. Good Friday, we just need one. Just one service is enough. So most of us never hear this text. Most of us never hear this text in the, in the course of the church year, and yet the gospel writers spend so much time on the cross. A huge percentage of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are spent on the cross as the defining moment in history, and we just pass right by it, and most of us never hear it as we go through our days and go through our year. 
So it's good that we're jarred by this text that talks about our king in ways that are surprising. The people in the time didn't understand what Jesus' king meant. They were mocking him for it. They, they made a crown of thorns for his head. They, they, they tease him and say, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. They put a sign above his cross mocking him and the claim that he is the king. And yet here we are today saying that the whole year builds to proclaiming that he is the king of our lives and of the world. And to understand this, to focus on it, to understand the power of what's taking place in this moment, I want us to focus on the words again. That's what I was trying to share at the beginning, the power of when words change a situation. Because there's so much action here, and all of it's important. But it's easy to potentially get lost in the action, the, the hammer, the nails, the cries, the mocking, the callousness of the soldiers. It's easy to kind of get lost in all that's taking place here, all of which is significant. But this morning, I want us to focus on the words that are spoken. Words in our faith have the power to shape and change situations. When we read in the book of Genesis that God creates the world, it says God speaks creation into existence. God's words change the fabric and nature of creation. And what I would submit to you is that the words of Jesus, not just the actions, show us what has been changed forever. That if we take Jesus' words here seriously, it would revolutionize the way we think of ourselves, our faith, and this world. And specifically, I'm talking about the words that are spoken between the thief on the cross and Jesus. And this exchange where the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus speaks with authority in response, even as he's dying, even as he's being mocked. He doesn't say, I'll put in a good word for you or, or, or I'll go and consult with somebody. He speaks with authority and says, today, I declare. It's, an, it, it, it's a strong command that he's speaking with. Today, he says, you will be with me in paradise. It must have sounded ridiculous to the people that were listening that he would act though, as though he has this kind of authority. But he does. As we see in the resurrection, he does. And as we celebrate Christ the King Sunday, what, I, what I've been thinking about recently, and I want to I invite you into sitting with this with me, is that if we take this conversation, if we take these words seriously from Jesus and the thief, I think one of the things that we're forced to admit that might change and revolutionize the way we think of ourselves and our faith in this world is that I think it's clear that Jesus didn't come to establish another religion. Which is odd when you see what the church has become. But I think these words and others in it in Scripture show us that Jesus did not come to establish another religion, but came to usher in a kingdom. And I wonder if we might sit with that difference today and think about what it means. Now, why do we say this? How do we talk about what religion is? Well, the way I want to think about it today is that if you look at religions around the world, if you look at any kind of faith movement, if you look at any kind of spirituality that's maybe not even calling itself a religion, every one of them has something critical in common. They are talking about how to bridge the gap between where things are and where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to bridge the gap between the creation and the creator. 
They're supposed to bridge the gap of when we look and say, well, I'm not a perfect person. You know, because any, any faith or spirituality goes, you're wonderful and the world's wonderful, that goes away really fast. Because I know I'm not wonderful. I know I'm not perfect all the time. I know this world isn't perfect. You know this world isn't perfect. You know you're not perfect. And if you're going, well, I think I'm really good, talk to people who are close to you. They'll help you figure out where your shortcomings might be. This is part of why we have small groups and mentoring relationships is we want each other to be known beyond our mass and people to go, oh, I know you, for good and for bad. I see you, and so does God. Religion says that what we do then is we gotta figure out how this gap between the way things are and the way they're supposed to be, between the way the world is and the way it's supposed to be, how do we close that gap? And what religions do is they teach you what to do. They're like, so, so, so pray this way or do this stuff, or follow these laws, or eat this food, or follow in this path, or develop these habits or patterns. And as you do, you'll sort of improve yourself, and that gap becomes less and less. Stand for these things in the world. Vote a certain way. And if we do, then the world starts just kind of having that gap get closer and closer and closer until maybe we can close it. Or maybe God is good enough that if we try and we get close enough and God sees our effort, God will go, oh, I'll just kind of push you over the top. Religion teaches us how it is that we are to order and shape our lives to bridge this gap between what is and what's supposed to be. Every one of them. And I'm telling you that Jesus did not come to set up a system like that and to say it's better than the other ones. Jesus did not come to set up a religious system. And the proof, among other places, is found in this conversation. Because the thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I declare to you today, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the thief has done nothing and can do nothing to bridge that gap. Can he? I heard it described one time, uh, sort of funny, is that you imagine the reaction of people in paradise, of religious people in paradise or in heaven when the thief shows up. It's kind of like, huh, well, this is a surprise. We didn't expect to see you here. Did you, did you, did you, change, your, did you change your actions at the very end? Did you, did you have, it's, you know, it's kind of, we're getting towards Christmas and the Zach Theater and the, and, and the Christmas Carol. Did, did you have an Ebenezer Scrooge moment? Did you have a moment where you realized you were living this bad life and, and at the end you turned it around and, and got those chains off you and now you're here and the criminal's like, no, I, I didn't do that. Oh, did you, did you have a religious experience that, that, that you, know, you were able to kind of go to the temple and sacrifice? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't do any of that. Oh, I get it. You were, you were living in an unjust system and the Romans were there and you were accused of something that, that was wrong that you were killed on a car. No, I, no I, I did what they said. Then why are you here? Because he said I could come. Because he said I could come. A religious person, when asked the question about how are we right, how are we good, how are we righteous, starts with a first-person pronoun. Oh, I do this, I don't do this, I do the right things, I followed enough rules, I pray this way. For a mature Christian who's tired of religion, any question or conversation on righteousness never starts with a first person. It starts with the third person pronoun. He said I could come. 
He forgave me. He declared me as righteous. Religion teaches us what we are to do to bridge this gap, to close this gap between who we are and how we're supposed to be. It gives us rules. It gives us guilt. It gives us systems. Religions teach us how to bridge the gap in this world between the way things are and the way they're supposed to be. And Jesus, my friends, has not come to give us another religion. He has come to establish a kingdom built on grace built on forgiveness. And all of us are welcome to live with that economy in our lives. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I need to know, I need you to know, there's a part of me that rebels against this entire message. I don't know if I'm the only one here. There's this like, no, 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 no. I mean, we've got to do something, right? No, 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 There's got to be something we do. Because the words have escaped my mouth before, and I'm the only one. Uh, you might not do this because you're better people than I am, I'm sure. But like, I've said things before. It's like, well, if they were a real Christian, they wouldn't do that. Well, if faith was real to them, they wouldn't kind of vote that way or think that way or do those things. Surely there's something we have to do to be a part of the system. Surely there's something we have to contribute And we sit, though, with the uncomfortable truth that Christianity is not a religion based on what we are to do. It is a celebration of what Jesus has done. Jesus didn't come to set up another religious system. He came to usher in a kingdom built upon grace. And the magnificence of that should never fail to overwhelm us. The magnificence of that good news should never become ordinary news. I was reminded of that this week in a very surprising and unexpected way. The last two weekends, I've had the joy on Saturday nights of getting to officiate weddings here in this sanctuary. They've been uh, kind of large, wonderful affairs. I've thoroughly enjoyed. It's been an honor to be a part of each and every one of them. And wedding uh, starts with uh, on the Friday here at the church with the rehearsal, right? The rehearsal is like the first official gathering of the weekend. And the rehearsals are great because people come in and they're full of excitement, right? It's like they're all together. People have often traveled to get here. It's the first official thing. They get here. They gather in this space. They're excited to see each other. The bride and groom are there. The families are there. There's just this like energy in the room at a rehearsal. And you know your job is to get everybody kind of rehearsed and practice and then let them leave to go have a good time because that's what that's part of it right that's part the first miracle Jesus had was making a wedding celebration go longer Jesus delights in that celebration so we want to be a part of it right so we've had these Saturday late day weddings but the rehearsals are late in the afternoon on Friday right here right here in this space and, um, and at one of the re wedding rehearsals, uh, we gathered here and, and there was that energy in the room and we asked everybody to sit down. But as they were gathering, I noticed that there was a, a, a young man sitting right here on the front row and he was wearing sunglasses. Um, but what I realized is, is that he had difficulty seeing, he had, he had trouble with his sight. And so his sunglasses were something that he uh, wore all the time. And as he was sitting right here on the front row, he had his hands out and what I realized is he was praying. With all of this excitement and energy in the room, and so we asked everybody to sit down. 
And I greet people as I often do and welcome them and say we're excited to celebrate and let them in a prayer. And then our wedding coordinator went through just very quickly a, a couple of rules because we know that the thing we had to do is get them up here into practice and then let them go. Our wedding coordinator at the end asked the question. He said, uh, does anybody have any questions before we start? Now, I have officiated probably 100 weddings. And every one of them is amazing and special. It's an honor to be a part of. I've never had anybody raise their hand at that moment before. Because we haven't even done anything yet, right? It's like we haven't done anything for which to have questions which will come. But as our wedding coordinator asked the question, do any of you all have any questions? His hand shot into the air. Sitting right here. Wedding coordinator said, yeah. He said, what do I have to do to be able to approach the altar? What do I have to do to be able to approach the altar? She said, I'm, can you say that again? I'm sorry. He said, what do I have to do? This is the altar of God. What do I have to do to humble myself to be able to approach the altar? I wish I had that kind of reverence. And our wedding coordinator said, you don't have to do anything. You're just welcome to come exactly as you are. And an enormous smile erupted on his face. The religious answer is, here's what you've got to do. To approach the altar of God. Here are all the things that you've got to do to humble yourself, to be able to approach the altar, to be in the presence of the almighty God. Christianity isn't a celebration of what we are to do. It is a celebration of what God has done. The thief can do nothing to close that gap. And the truth is, Neither can you, and neither can I, and neither could the Roman soldiers, and neither could the priests, and neither could the crowd, and neither could the disciples who ran. But the kingdom became more real when one of them finally said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. So my friends, as we culminate this year-long journey, may those words be our words this day. Jesus, remember me. I'm done with religion. Remember me. I'm done with trying to be good enough. Remember me. I'm done with believing that I can just improve myself and this time I really mean that I'm going to be different. Remember me. Remember me in the journey that I'm on right now. Remember my family members in the journey they're on right now. Remember me as I breathe my last in this world. Remember me as I try to repair a hurting marriage. Remember me as I seek to love my neighbors as hard as it is. Remember me as I go through another Thanksgiving feeling the pain of who is not around that table. Remember me. And to hear the words of response this day. I do. I am with you. You are not alone. 
and it shall be overcome. These are not the words of a religious leader. They're the words of a king. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in all of the journeys that we are on and in the promises you make because of your amazing love for us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.